Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll hear about a farm in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania that can grow on one acre what other farms grow on 100 acres. And so what we're building now is the next generation network of farms close to the communities that we serve, close to the cities, and we're building what is the future farms going to look like that will also feed these cities. We'll also hear about a podcast that explores a mysterious disappearance amid the back to the land movement of the 1970s and 80s. You have to be very careful. You don't want to falsely accuse someone. And we'll hear about a team of scientists that found dozens of new millipedes across Appalachia. They named one species after a pop star. And so I've been a fan of Taylor Swift's music for a while now. And when I started my PhD, I thought, you know, if we find enough species, it'd be fun to name one after her. You'll hear these stories and more this week in South Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today's show takes a close look at some of the rarer plants and creatures that inhabit Appalachia. But first, we're going to start with a basic need that turns out to be a tricky issue in a lot of places in Appalachia. Water. McDowell County, West Virginia, is one of those places where access to clean water hasn't always been a given. But now, some communities there have finally been connected to a reliable water system. One of those places is Keystone, where 74% of residents are black. Jessica Lilly has the story. For more than a decade, residents of Keystone have endured a boil water advisory. That's if they were able to get water at all. Some households have gone months without tap water. It's just been very devastating. 76-year-old Hattie Avery has lived here her entire life. To think we're in the 2020 era where people are able to do such amazing things and then to not be able to turn on your faucet and have water running through your pipes. It's just so amazing to me. It's just so hard to believe that we live in a time like that. But now Avery isn't worrying about where she's going to bathe or how she'll wash her clothes. Oh, it's so much more peaceful to be able to go and sit on your commode and be able to push the handle down and flush it and to be able to use your shower and your, just to turn on your faucets and hear the water run. The water's running in Avery's home now in part because of a California nonprofit called Dig Deep, whose mission is to bring safe drinking water to every American. Bob McKinney grew up in McDowell. He's the project manager of the Appalachian Water Project with Dig Deep. I was embarrassed to say I didn't know we were in kind of, this kind of shape. I didn't know we had homeowners that didn't have clean drinking water and had to haul their water. And I knew that there was some, but I didn't know there was this many. I mean, it, a huge task is facing us. The task facing them was to connect hundreds of households in McDowell County to a new municipal water system, which broke ground in 2014. The trouble was, even after new main lines were installed along Route 52, homeowners had to find a way to pay for the connection. The median household income in Keystone is about $17,000 annually. That was a big problem for quite a few people, for all of us, really, because uh, 
you know, just to come up with that kind of money all of a sudden and then with all the other bills and hardships that people have, you know, that was really going to create a big problem. Because of the cost, many McDowell County residents rejected hookups. So McKinney and his partners with Dig Deep started knocking on doors to see who wanted help. They didn't want new lines at first until they found out we were going to pay for them. And then they were okay with that. They couldn't afford it. But then we, when we heard about Dig Deep and, and then their willingness to come in and help, that was such a tremendous blessing. And because of them, that's the only reason that a lot of us have the water. Keystone wasn't always without clean and consistent water access. When Avery was a child, it was a prosperous coal town. Growing up here was... You know, people that lived in the big cities couldn't have had a more enjoyable childhood or a more enjoyable uh, life than what we had living here. We just enjoyed being children living here. We had a lot of fun things growing up in Keystone. Still, Avery says life wasn't always easy. She lost her father when she was just six years old. I just remember, you know, us being at home and them coming, knocking on the door and telling us that our father had been killed in a coal mining accident. He was in one of the coal cars and something came back and crushed him. He was killed, so. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was devastating. Over time, mines closed, jobs disappeared, and the population fell dramatically. In 2010, when the Boil Water Advisory first took effect, 282 people lived in Keystone. We have so many people who have relocated, who have been so frustrated, and who have just given up and just left. And, and you can't blame them. Today, there are 176 residents. More than a third of the population has left town since 2010. Of those who stayed, 57% are black. A recent study showed that in America, you're more likely to live without consistent water if you are black. However, that's not the case for the entire state. Avery believes that her race is only part of the issue in Keystone. I don't think that it's all about being black, but I think it's about being poor, not being up to standards or being in the limelight or being as important as what they want you to be. And while Avery does have water now, it's not perfect. She still doesn't drink or cook with it, even though she's told it's safe. Because of low water pressure, she can't use more than one spigot at a time. Washing dishes and doing laundry at the same time just isn't possible. You may have to wait. You may not be able to do all the things you want to do when you want to do them. But to be able to hear the water run from your faucets is a blessing. And I'm willing to wait <laughs> because I know that it's going to come. It's running. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Jessica Lilly in Keystone. The lack of access to basic amenities like clean tap water 
has made life difficult for people in communities across Appalachia. And it's not just people having a tough time. Plant species are going extinct at alarming rates. Researchers are trying to save one native plant found only in the Appalachian Mountains from that same fate. The Allegheny Front's Andy Hubis has this story from Pennsylvania. Canby's mountain lover, scientific name Pachystema cambii, is one of the rarest plants in Pennsylvania. Only a couple dozen people have ever even seen it growing in the wild. It's not just rare in Pennsylvania, it's rare everywhere. Steve Grund is a botanist with the Pennsylvania Natural Heritage Program, and he works out of the Pittsburgh office of the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. This plant could go extinct. It's a really plausible outcome. And John Koonsman works out of the Conservancy's office in Harrisburg. It was the first rare plant I ever looked for, and I was thrilled to death. <laughs> I really was. Why don't, you, yeah, why don't you go with us? Okay. On a recent Saturday morning, I met up with Grund and Kunzman in Bedford, Pennsylvania, the northern limit of the plant's range. The Western Pennsylvania Conservancy bought this land, about eight acres, from a private landowner in 1994, specifically to protect the Canby's mountain lover. The plant is in danger because of an insect called a scale. It sucks nutrients from the plant, including water. Grund explains the insect is here because of an invasive vine called the Asian bittersweet that serves as its host. It's a terrible weed. It's particularly bad in this area. And so the fact that this Asian bittersweet is such a problem locally here and at this site is partly why the Canby's mountain lover is in trouble here because it has that scale. Oh, you guys going to need some. The botanists grabbed their weapon for this mission, a highly refined oil mixed with water loaded up in a squirt bottle. It, it basically suffocates the scales. When they hatch from the egg, they're in a form called crawlers, and that's the only time in their life that they move. And while they're in that stage, they're vulnerable to this oil. We walked several hundred yards uphill and into the edge of the forest. We would call this a rocky wooded calcareous woods for a, for a fancy name, or just a rocky wooded limestone woods. When we get out there, I'll, I'll just drop this off the top. Pretty soon we are up on a limestone cliff. It's about a 50-foot drop down. It looks like the sort of place you'd find rock climbers. There are pink flags scattered around, marking where the Canby's mountain lover is growing. So that flag marked where we started treating last time. It'd be very easy to walk right past it and never know you were so close to something so rare. So here's the plant. It's a little shrub. It can get bigger than this, and it can kind of sprawl out. The plant is evergreen, with little dark green leathery leaves. Soon it will have tiny white flowers. Right now it looks a little bit like rosemary. How rare is this plant? In Pennsylvania, we have three sites. This one, then there's one in the state park, Shawnee State Park. Then there's one on private land. Botanists believe that there are fewer than 70 genetically distinct plants throughout its entire range, which extends as far south as Tennessee. This is a, an Appalachian endemic. It only grows in limestone outcrops. You know, I can't say it's impossible that there are undiscovered populations, but we know better than we do for most plants. Let's see if we can find any crawlers on this plant here. Grun gets down on the forest floor to get to work. He's perched on the edge of the limestone cliff. It's slightly terrifying. 
He puts on gloves to protect his hands and then sprays the plant with the oil. Can you hand me my sprayer, please? Next, he gets out a tiny, bright yellow notebook and magnifying glass that he wears around his neck. They're very, very tiny. So what you do is you get a white piece of paper, and my field notebook works fine for that. You put it under the plant, then you flick it with your fingers. I'm not getting any crawlers. Maybe it's because I have the wrong glasses on. It's not the glasses. It's the same thing the next few plants he sprays. No crawlers. And he thinks that's a good sign. Maybe we timed it really well and got most of them last time. The botanists, along with a couple volunteers, will be at this site all day, spraying and counting the plants. Right now, the count is about the same as the one made in 2012, when the first treatment of the scale was done. But they will also come out two more times this summer. It's a lot of effort for one small plant, but Grun says a team across the state, botanists, academics, park rangers, and citizens, chose this one to focus on because there's action they can take. Often I feel like my job is to document the demise of rare plants. Here we have a case where there's something we can do about it. We don't know yet how successful we'll be long-term in treating it, but there's a chance that we can save these Pennsylvania populations and the rest of the range and hopefully keep it off the endangered species list. So why should someone care that a small plant that only grows in three areas of the state might go extinct? One reason often used is that you never know what plant might contain the cure for cancer. But Grun says it's not just about what benefits humans. It's the ecological connection, too. When you lose one species, then you might lose the species that feeds on it. Then another species that that species feeds on might explode exponentially. You know, these things are all connected, and sometimes we know what those connections are, and often we don't. Botanists don't know anything about the role the Cambius mountain lover plays in its ecosystem. And they won't have a chance if it disappears and becomes something you'd find in a greenhouse. Again, John Kunzman. We want to save this in its natural habitat, you know, not in a botanical garden somewhere. I want to see it growing where it should. And that's why we're out here. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Andy Cubis. Pop star Taylor Swift is known for her ridiculously catchy pop songs and her legions of obsessive fans. And now she has a millipede in Appalachia that's named after her. It's called Nanaria Swifte, or Swift Twisted Claw Millipede. Taylor Swift's millipede was given her name by an entomologist named Dara Kennan, who was a PhD at Virginia Tech when he and a team of scientists discovered 17 new millipede species. Naturally, I had to talk to him. I drove down the mountain and met him in Christiansburg, Virginia, to talk about millipedes and pop stars. You know, a lot of people hear about new species and they think about the rainforest, but right here in Appalachia, you and your team discovered 17 new species of millipede. That's right. How did you discover 17 new species of millipede? Uh, a lot of legwork, that's for sure. So when we started this project, there were 23 described species in the genus, um, the twisted claw millipedes. And uh, now, um, after about five or six years of investigating these things, we've now increased that number to 78. So really just increased our knowledge of the diversity. It's actually the um, largest genus in that family now. So really just this explosion of biodiversity. It, it would be a good day of collecting when we could find, say, six or so individuals of these. We'd think, oh man, that was great. Um, they're a lot uh, more rare. 
than other species in that family, and that's one of the reasons why no one had really taken a close look before. So the rule, as I understand it, is you you find it, you get to name it. Is mm-hmm. that right? That is right, yeah. So how do you go about naming 17 new species? Is yeah. there like a protocol? How do, what do you do? There is a protocol, and so you have to follow the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature. Uh, there aren't really a lot of stipulations. Um, you can't name anything offensive, but generally a pretty free reign. And so in total, we named over 50 new species of uh, these millipedes. So we had a lot to work from. Uh, and we pulled names from different things. So sometimes we chose the morphology, um, sometimes kind of the geographical area that we found it. Um, other times I named a couple of new species after trees that were in the forest because I kept seeing like rhododendron was really good habitat, tulip tree, and so I named a couple of species after that. Some after animals, and that was also kind of tied into geography. So if you know the Peaks of Otter in Virginia, we got a new species down there, and so that's named Ninaria lutra. Lutra being Latin for otter. How did you name one after Taylor Swift? Yeah, so another fun thing you can do is name um, species after people. And so I've been a fan of Taylor Swift's music for a while now. And when I started my PhD, I thought, you know, if we find enough species, it'd be fun to name one after her. And we definitely did find enough new species to name. And so um, this particular species comes from Southeast Tennessee. We found it in a couple of different spots. And so I was like, oh, she, you know, lived in Tennessee for a while. This is perfect. So that's where that one came from. Did you name any after any family members? I did. So I named uh, one species after my wife. Uh, this was collected in Augusta County, Virginia, which is where my wife grew up. So it's like, ah, oh, perfect. And I later found out that the exact spot where uh, we had collected it from, um, she had actually camped there with her family before. So sometime soon we're going to go back and try to find it and get a photo of her with her namesake millipede now. Do you mind saying the name of that millipede? Yeah, so that's uh, Ninaria Marianae, named after my wife Marion. And really just in appreciation of her loving support and um, above all else, patience for me, because I don't think we've ever gone on a hike where I didn't stop to look for bugs, and she's never complained about that. In the millipede scientist community, are you like a rock star now? I, I don't think there are any rock stars in the millipede scientist community. Are you the Taylor but... Swift of the, <laughs> of the millipede scientist no, community? No, I could never claim that title. Um, but it's actually a great time to get into millipedes, and there are a lot of people, both um, kind of uh, formal scientists as well as interested hobbyists and other um, just nature enthusiasts who are getting into millipedes more now. Uh, the advent of the internet and photo sharing sites like iNaturalist has really been able to show people just how beautiful and charismatic these uh, creatures are. Do you have any tips for our listeners who may be interested, you know, in, in exploring the insects and animals around their house, especially kids? Do you yeah. have some tips? Um, move slowly and just stay curious. You know, if you see a rock or a log or a pile of leaves, flip it over. I use a little garden claw that, you know, costs less than $10. So it's a very accessible hobby. You don't really need a lot of equipment for it. And really just, you know, if you just see, anytime I see a patch of trees, I'm always thinking, I wonder what bugs are in there. When can I get in there to check it out? So it really is all around. If you can just find any natural area, even just around a building or around your house, you're likely to find um, bugs, spiders, millipedes, kind of whatever else. And you're probably going to be surprised by the diversity that's all around you. Um, when I was uh, growing up in Ohio, I started cataloging just all the insects I could find in my backyard. And this is on a property that was about an acre. And I found easily over 300 species. And so once you start looking, you know, it really scratches that collecting itch for those of us who have it. And it's a really rewarding way to really 
um, connect with the natural heritage that's all around you. When you can place a name on something, you start to care a lot more about it, and you can really understand our place in the world as well. And I think that's really powerful. That was rock star Appalachian millipede scientist Derek Hannon. You can see photos of some of these newly discovered species of millipedes on our website. That's wvpublic.org. Coming up, we'll hear a tall tale about another kind of creepy crawly, the Goliath bird-eating spider. That's after a break. I'm Mason Adams. You're inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. If you've never heard of the West Virginia Liars Contest, it's good old Appalachian tall tale tailing, where what's told ranges from cringeworthy to hilarious. This year's winner was Callie Hall from Putnam County, with a story that's some of both. So, when I was a kid, it seemed like the question that was on everyone's mind was, what is your favorite animal? I mean, it was an easy way to spice up the playground banner. You have your cat versus dog people, you have your lions, tigers, and bears, oh my kind of people. But my opinion was kind of a hot take. You see, I am a very big fan of bugs. And I mean, it's not that uncommon if you're a fan of butterflies or if you were a fan of ladybugs, but what you gotta understand is that I am a big fan of spiders. And not just the little ones either, the big ones. When I was four, I got my first tarantula, and by the time I was six, there was nothing I wanted more in this world than a Goliath bird-eating spider. Because a fun fact about the Goliath bird-eating spider is that they are the largest spiders in the world. The female Goliath bird-eating spider can grow up to be 11 inches long and weighs up to 6 ounces. Now, I mean, the male spider is the size of a quarter and weighs an ounce, but I don't hold it against him. And so, on my sixth birthday, my mom drove me up to Ohio where we went to a breeder's, and I got one female spider and one male. And I love them more than anything else in this world. I love them so much, in fact, that I couldn't bear to be parted with them when I went to sleepaway camp. Although the camp had a strict no animals allowed rule, so what I would do is I would take the female spider and I would stick it in the front pocket of my overalls and I would take the male spider and I would stick it on my baseball cap. Because for some reason, I thought the best way to keep them hidden and safe was to keep them on my person at all times. So one day, I was outside playing with my spiders when they call the campers to assembly. And so, I'm walking to assembly, spider in the front, spider on the hat, when I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I hear a voice behind me say, Oh my God, I love your baseball cap. Can I hold it? And I'm like, sure, man, here you go. And she just looks at it. And without a word, she takes the hat, she places it on the ground, and repeatedly stomps on it and then goes to assembly like nothing happened. And I am on my knees. I am grieving the loss of this spider, the greatest grief a six-year-old has ever felt. 
And when I shed all my tears and I wipe the spider guts off my hat, it's then I realize the female spider is gone. And so I am crying, mourning the loss of not one, but two of my beloved spiders. I cry at assembly, I cry at lunch, and I cry all the way until it's time for bed. And they're about to call lights out. When all of a sudden I see from the corner of my eye, up in the rafters above this girl's bunk bed, two hairy legs poking out from the rafters. Now I know as a kid, when you see something, you're supposed to say something, but I didn't. <laughs> and so they call lights out, and it's pitch black and absolutely silent, followed by the loudest screams I have ever heard in my entire life. Because you see, they'll tell you the Goliath bird-eating spider is the largest spider in the world, but what they don't tell you is that they're also the most vengeful. That story earned Callie Hall $100 in the coveted golden shovel at the Vandalia Gathering's annual Liars Contest. Marsha Ferber's disappearance in 1988 has puzzled the community around Morgantown, West Virginia, for decades. Ferber moved there from New Jersey in the late 70s and became a fixture. She established a pair of clubs and the Mountain People's Co-op. Then, in April of 1988, she vanished. A new podcast titled I Was Never There aims to shed new light on the disappearance and on the Back to the Land movement that provides the story's backdrop. The podcast was created by a mother and daughter, Karen and Jamie Zellermeyer. Reporter Chris Schultz recently sat down with them to learn more. Jamie and Karen, thank you both so much for sitting down to speak with me today. Explain to our listeners what I Was Never There is. Karen, why don't you start us off? Well, it's the story of Marsha Ferber, who disappeared in 1988. So it is a true crime podcast, but it's much more than true crime. It's my story and Jamie's story. It's the story of 1970s and 80s in West Virginia and the movement of people who were looking to create an alternative life through the Back to the Land movement and then creating alternative businesses, co-ops. And Marsha was an entrepreneur, so she established cooperative houses called the Earth House, and she established the Underground Railroad and the Dry House. So it really is a very rich, full story of that time period. And then she disappeared. And what happened? Jamie, what, what can you add to that? For many years, I have been wanting to tell the story of the time and place, which was West Virginia in the 1970s and 80s. We realized that it was hard to just tell our story without telling Marsha's story and vice versa because they were so interconnected. My mom had worked at the bar. My dad is on the police report as her attorney when she disappeared. The podcast, I think, is the story of a, of a disappearance. And it is also the story of a time and a place, which was this glorious time in West Virginia in the 1970s. Karen, why tell this story now after more than 30 years? 
You know, Jamie is actually the one who's best positioned to tell that story. We've had a long interest in wanting to tell the story of that time and place in West Virginia. And she knew what a devastating experience it was that she went missing and had just the, how hard it was for many of us to find closure. Jamie, why did you want to tell this story now? Obviously, true crime is something that interests people these days. But for me, true crime doesn't really resonate unless there's a bigger story behind it, unless you can really get to know the person and understand the the world that they lived in, in the circumstances. I feel like the story of the Back to the Land movement um, and the way Marsha lived her life and the way my mom lived her life is not so different, you know, in terms of what they were fighting for. Those issues are still the same today. So I felt like the story was very contemporary and that there was a lot for us to look at in terms of what they were doing back in the 70s and 80s and how that would translate to today. How was the process of of making a podcast? I had never done audio before. I come from a film and television background, and I, I feel like when people tell the story of the 70s, it can be very cliche in terms of the visuals. So I loved the idea of doing it without visuals. The true crime part was pretty intense. We worked closely with the Morgantown Police Department. That was not something that I had experience with in terms of you have to be very careful. You don't want to falsely accuse someone. You want to make sure you're getting your facts right. So it was, you know, a new process for me, but how lucky to be able to do something new and to do it as a mother-daughter. Karen, what about for you? You know, my initial motivation was what a trip it would be, how fabulous it would be to be able to do a project with my kid. And I didn't have a clue what that meant. And it became a much more intense, emotional experience than I ever intended. The processing between Jamie and I and my having to think about some of the stuff I did back then. What was I thinking? I mean, really, what was I thinking? I, I could have lost my kids. You know, I mean, there was just some crazy stuff happening. It was an amazing process. Can you talk about the role of counterculture and, and I guess, to a certain extent, drugs in this story? One of the ongoing conversations that we had with our producers, and I would be adamant about this, marijuana is not a drug it's also a story of drugs. So for me, the counterculture was about marijuana and it was about psychedelics and it was about believing that we could create alternative economies that weren't based on greed, that were based on cooperation and equity. That is what the counterculture was for me. When I say drugs, I mean cocaine and heroin and and now opioids, right, in West Virginia. But back then, That wasn't the case of the counterculture. And I think those drugs are life-destroying. And we lost a lot of friends. Jamie, as somebody who was a child at this time, what was your perception of this lifestyle that you were kind of brought into so young? I loved it. We had a lot of great adults around. And I think, as my mom said, we've lost a lot of friends. I think that there's a lot of light and there's a lot of dark. And something can be both. And we've talked about that, about Marsha a lot, that she had a lot of light. She was this really positive force who really loved it deeply. And she was a drug dealer. Whether selling pot. Selling, selling pot. pot, maybe others. 
I think an important part of the podcast was this, this back and forth. It was important to look at both sides of it. And the drug part was very complicated. Obviously, whether it was an intentional disappearance or a murder or witness protection or any number of the theories, most likely drugs were involved. What do you hope people walk away with having listened to this show? I hope they walk away with an understanding that all of the problems that we were trying to get away from and reject are just as bad today, if not worse. And I hope they think, wow, those folks really took some big risks. Well, I still think we can change those things. So I hope that people look at what we did and hear our story and say, it's time for me to try that now. The podcast, I Was Never There, released its first two episodes on June 9th. Supply chain disruptions and inflation have a lot of people thinking about where their food comes from and if they can get it from closer to home. In Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, something called a vertical farm may represent a way to balance growing demand for local food with less land. WDIY's Marcy Lightwood has more. Bowery Farming has just opened its third Bowery food production farm, which grows the amount of food on about one acre, which would take 100 acres of traditional farmland to produce. It is being done on brownfield land where industrial processes related to Bethlehem Steel took place decades ago. Last week, state and local officials gathered to celebrate the opening, including Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe, Northampton County Executive Lamont McClure, and Bethlehem Mayor J. William Reynolds. Governor Wolf spoke at the event, welcoming Bowery to Pennsylvania, and noted that agriculture is a priority in Pennsylvania in this vertical farm in Bethlehem. A lot of the innovations that have come through agriculture have come through Pennsylvania, and the biggest industry in Pennsylvania is agriculture. So we're really proud of that, that heritage. But what we're proudest of is the innovation and the new thinking that's, that's going on. Mayor Reynolds said bringing Bowery to Bethlehem was a cooperative effort and is emblematic of a changing city. It's an amazing thing, and it is another step forward as we talk about sustainability, as we talk about our climate action plan here in the city of Bethlehem. This is not the Bethlehem that I grew up in, um, or it's not, it's not the Lehigh Valley that existed 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Bowery executive Irving Fain spoke to the world's need for the innovative agricultural technology that Bowery exemplifies. And so what we're building now is the next generation network of farms close to the communities that we serve, close to the cities, and we're building what is the future farms going to look like that will also feed these cities. You know, when you look at climate change and you look at agriculture's interaction, we take 70% of the world's water with agriculture every year. The traditional agricultural system puts down about a billion pounds of pesticides annually in the U.S. and about six billion pounds globally. And about a third of our global greenhouse gas emissions come from the broader food system. We are firm believers that wherever food is needed, we can grow it. Attendees at the event were invited to tour the facility. Katie Sewell, Chief Commercial Officer of Bowery Bethlehem, led us through huge rooms filled with trays of plants, from seedlings to ready-to-market greens and herbs. 
The aroma of the herbs filled the enormous space. And then we will walk the entirety of the farm, the entirety of our supply chain, from seeding to packaging in this space. Sewell said much of the lettuce sold in the United States is grown in California, which means those of us in the East seldom get greens that are truly fresh. Again, you think about it, 90% of our lettuce comes from California. You can't walk that supply chain. You lose transparency in that supply chain. Bowery has the ability to grow, harvest, package, and ship all in one location, close to 50 million people. We can grow food all year round, consistently, reliably, 365 days of the year, independent of weather and seasonality. So it's consistent. We use a tiny fraction of water compared to traditional agriculture. This is pesticide-free food, agrochemical-free food, and it's powered by 100% renewable energy here in Bethlehem as well. The new vertical farm will create and retain at least 70 full-time jobs and help feed people within a 200-mile radius of the building, according to the governor's office. Wolf said overall, agriculture is a $132 billion industry in Pennsylvania. He said Bowery received more than $400,000 in grant money and tax credits from the state government for the new Bethlehem facility. Wolf added that the company has pledged to invest $32 million into the project and called it part of the Lehigh Valley's economic revitalization. So what you see back here, you turned a brownfield into something, something that, that can serve, what, 50 million people a year. And I was proud to support this project, the governor's action team was, but you did it, you've done this. For WDIY News, I'm Marcy Lightwood. Several weeks ago, we heard about a business that intentionally seeks out and hires people at risk or in recovery to work at a combination farm, cafe, and bakery. Now, Tammy Jordan, the founder of Fruits of Labor, is helping other businesses create work environments that are recovery-friendly. She helped create a program called Communities of Healing. Reporter Jessica Lilly brings us a story about one business that's using the program, Appalachian Furnishings in Wyoming County. One of the businesses that took part in the program is Appalachian Furnishings. On a recent weekday, owner Chris Adams was busy working on a custom order for a local school. You have to pardon the mess. No, it's, a, it's actually quite impressive for a wood shop. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have much uh, in the line of furniture that, we're, that we've got finished. These are going to be trophy cases eventually. All of this. Adams expanded his growing business in 2020, moving it from his basement to this shop. That's also when he decided to enroll in Communities of Healing. He spent 14 weeks learning alongside other businesses how to create a workplace that incorporates the social enterprise. Adams learned that before he could employ those in recovery, he had to have a solid business. The social enterprise part of it can only be successful if the business is successful. Since Adams completed the program, six people have worked in the shop as part of their recovery. One guy that worked, he completed his recovery program, and because he was working here and because he had secured a job, that helped him get his child back into the home with him and his wife. Even though he didn't stay here, it was still a win because he got his little boy back, he got a job close to home, and still to this day, as far as I know, he's, he's doing good. Not every story ends that way. Adam says some relapsed, overdosed, and passed away. 
The latest employee in training at Appalachian Furnishings is Chris Puckett. He's here as part of his recovery from substance use disorder. It's been about a year since he realized he needed help. Kind of wigged out on my family due to the, the sleep deprivation and the, and the psychosis from extended use and, and all that. So it landed me, in a, landed me in the hospital and landed me in rehab. I decided that was enough. Turn my life around. Puckett lowers the handle on a chop saw to trim a piece of wood and demonstrate his newfound knowledge of using a power tool. But that's not all he's learned. Material selection, wood burning, dimensioning, taught me how to take the, the raw lumber that we have and dimension it, turn it into what you need to build the, the furniture that you're tasked with building. Before the job, Puckett never worked in a wood shop and had never used power tools. It's a whole new experience. The biggest difference, Puckett says, is just the way Chris Adams treats him. He's been really patient and understanding and teaching me how to do all this. And sometimes, sometimes I just don't get it. You know, sometimes it's just gear and headlights. And, you know, he's just patience and understanding. Chris came with like zero knowledge of what we were doing. And he was up front about that. Uh, when I interviewed him, he told me he had zero knowledge uh, about what we were doing. So my expectations were somebody with zero knowledge. Adams hasn't always been a woodworker either. He worked in or around the mining industry for about 40 years before retiring. He remembers a time when his brother lost his job and needed help. Had several kidney stone issues and things like that that had kind of introduced him to, to pain relief. He became addicted to, to opioids. On his own, he, you know, two or three times he would say, that's it, no more, I'm not taking any more, because he had a wife and, and a child. But he would always, would always relapse. I was at work. That's when I was six days a week, you know, sometimes seven days a week, always 12 hours a day, sometimes longer, and it just... Uh, I had suspicions, but I had no idea how bad it was. Once I realized how bad it was, I mean, it was at the point that we got to intervene and do something. So uh, thank goodness that I had that job because me and my wife, we could afford to, to cover the cost uh, of a program that he participated in. Not everyone can afford treatment. So when Adams expanded his woodworking business in 2020, he decided he wanted to help people like his brother. Because all of those years with the heavy equipment dealer and with the coal company, I was supervision and management, and I would catch those resumes that had those employment gaps in it, and I knew what that was. You know, those resumes just went in the trash can. His brother could have easily been the name behind one of those resumes Adams tossed in the trash. For Chris Puckett, the job training is helping him to find hope and healing, something he wants to share with the community. When you're ready, go get help. You can't get help unless you're ready. But, it, I mean, if you're ready, there's so much on the other side. So much. Like, it's been so long since I've experienced this type of happiness, and I just hope everybody else can. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jessica Lilly in Wyoming County. 
In 2021, the Juneteenth celebration became a federal holiday. Juneteenth recognizes the anniversary of an important event in American history, the emancipation of enslaved African Americans in Galveston, Texas, in 1865. Eric Douglas spoke with the Reverend Ron English to find out more about the holiday and the history behind it. English is a retired pastor who grew up in Atlanta with Martin Luther King Jr. and his family before moving to Charleston in the early 1970s. Juneteenth started out as a fairly regional holiday. I mean, it was oh, yeah. it was really just a Texas uh, uh, celebration at first, and just in the last 30, 40 years, I think that it's it's oh, yeah. grown and and expanded. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's why I brought along the book uh, that, that's uh, written by um, Arnett Gordon Reed. You know, put a surprise runner, and uh, that was a little paragraph here that I got to read because the best folk who can tell a story about Texas are the folks from Texas. <laughs> true enough, true enough. <laughs> and she is from Texas, and she's made that. It says, uh, and, and, and I read this little passage, it says, as years have gone by, I have uh, have had occasions to uh, think more about the tragedy and triumph in relation to Texas, its past, present, and future. It's possible, very likely, that my time that prepared me for the work I do as a historian of the early American Republic, another moment when triumph and tragedy were inexorably intertwined. Distangling those threads and viewing them critically has been, in fact, a good thing in the context of our national history, broadening our understanding of who we are and who we are now. And uh, that really brings forth what uh, the meaning of Juneteenth means in the current context of becoming the first uh, really federal holiday that really celebrates the role of black folk. How do you see Juneteenth in context of African Americans in the United States today? One of the things that is pushing our celebration here in Charleston of Juneteenth, three things uh, featuring that, and that is hope, healing, and health. Now, the hope is grounded in how we still have, and this is still amazing, that black folks still have a hope that is grounded in a kind of feeling that the arc, uh, as King said, the arc of Mark universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So it is not just a political uh, aspiration of hope. It is a feeling that if the universe is friendly, <laughs> then freedom is what the primary intention is for everybody. All right. And, and so it's really saying that it is much deeper than just a political celebration or a political intent. It is really something that is really arced, uh, sourced in what the uh, universe is confirming about, about justice. Now, just, just for background on you for a moment, you were a contemporary of, of Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, no. you want to give the the 30-second version of that. Yeah, his, his, his family and my family are very close. 
Uh, my mother used to talk to Mama King <laughs> into the uh, wee hours in the morning because they just had that kind of connection. And I uh, really have pictures of him when he was a kid. <laughs> well, one of the pictures that I have is him sticking out his head uh, on a uh, car window. And uh, my mother put on that picture uh, just hanging out because he was actually <laughs> hanging out of the window <laughs> of that car. So our, our families had gone back further. And then he licensed me into the ministry. And I, I, I served as his assistant until his death. And I gave the uh, uh, prayer at his funeral. So there were uh, opportunities, and as I think about them now, uh, of being with him uh, every once in a while alone and, and got so excited that I would forget about what I wanted to say. And now so many questions now that I think about, wow, I wish I had asked Doc about that. So, but, but yeah, that was the relationship that we had primarily by way of our family connections. And, and then naturally, uh, even in high school, uh, in 1962 or so, uh, when they started boycotting in Atlanta, uh, a friend of mine did a sit-in at Rich's <laughs> at lunch counter uh, because we weren't really allowed to, to get into the movie because of uh, our age and, and mm -hmm. that kind of thing, parents and all that. So we just decided to do that. And then later on, uh, there was some other things that we were able to participate in more actively. So part of what um, uh, really the... Um, Focus and and uh, grounding, you know, with, with, with Dr. King was because of that association. That was Reverend Ron English speaking with Eric Douglas about Juneteenth. To hear a longer version of this interview, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Going to close out the show with a shout out to the folks upstairs. Our big sister show, Mountain Stage. Mountain Stage is West Virginia Public Broadcasting's most popular and famous show showcasing amazing performances for nearly 40 years. There's a spring. Mountain Stage is West Virginia Public Broadcasting's most popular and famous show, showcasing amazing performances for nearly 40 years. A few weeks ago, West Virginia culture and history curator Randall Reed Smith presented a Vandalia Award to co-founder and longtime host Larry Gross and executive producer Adam Harris. Whereas... Mountain Stage has been West Virginia's premier live music radio performance since 1983, and I always like to say the best calling card for the state of West Virginia. And whereas it continues to be a proud ambassador for West Virginia, airing on radio stations around the world, and whereas Mountain Stage has introduced many West Virginia musicians to countless listeners across the state, country, and world, and universe. And whereas Mountain Stage continues to offer a platform for emerging artists and seasoned performers to showcase their talents in the format of live performance radio, and whereas the show's hosts consistently remind listeners that Mountain Stage's great music comes from the mountain state of the great state of West Virginia. Therefore, I, by the authority vested in me, 
to foster the preservation of West Virginia's traditional culture do present to the Mountain Stage Radio Band the Vandalia Award for the year 2022, signed by yours truly. Congratulations, Larry. Congratulations, Adam. Give him a, give him a big hand. This is a wonderful thing. It's a great honor, and it was a surprise to us. I went to, to look at our roles. You know, we've had a lot of people on the show, and as you know, we, we do, as Randall said, we uh, present a lot of kinds of music. We've had well over 200 West Virginians perform on Mountain Stage, and half of those have been traditional players. And I looked it up, and actually 16 of the previous award winners of this Vandalia Award have performed on Mountain Stage. And nothing makes us happier than to present that kind of music to all the people that listen. We have now between 250 and 300,000 people that hear every Mountain Stage show. This, this first song... I've heard many times by many different people here and elsewhere. Oh, the cuckoo, she's a pretty bird, and she warbles as she flies, but she never. Holler's cuckoo Till the fourth day of June Congratulations to the folks at Mountain Stage, which is coming up on its 1,000th episode. Mountain Stage, like Inside Appalachia, is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Have a story about Appalachia you think we should hear? Write to us at InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Or you can find us at West Virginia Public Broadcasting on Facebook or at WV Public on Instagram. I'm Mason Adams. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Ona, Blue Dot Sessions, Montana Skies, and Taylor Swift. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.